Welcome to Undercurrents Unveiled, the Marine Hose Cartel Antitrust Odyssey, brought to you by the Antitrust Section of the New York State Bar Association. Undercurrents Unveiled takes you on a four-episode journey through the investigation, prosecution and defense, and follow-on litigation surrounding the high-profile cartel by the lawyers involved. Now, prepare to be entertained while gaining valuable insights into the legal battles that unfolded beneath the surface of this remarkable case. Welcome to episode four of Undercurrents Unveiled, the Marine Hose Cartel Antitrust Odyssey. My name is Christina McFall, and I'll be your host for today's episode, Beyond the Conviction, Policy Considerations and Compliance. Today, we'll examine the broader implications of the Marine Hose Cartel cases through discussions on the policy concerns surrounding corporate recidivism and antitrust enforcement, the increased importance of robust compliance programs, and the effect of compliance programs on risk and future conduct. With me today are Mark Grunvig, Andre Gavarola, and Adam Henlock. Mark is the Assistant Chief of the Washington Criminal II Section of the U.S. Department of Justice Antitrust Division. Andre was an assistant chief in the antitrust division and was the lead prosecutor in the case against Bridgestone for its involvement in the automotive anti-vibration rubber products conspiracy, or auto parts conspiracy, which followed its prosecution for the marine hose conspiracy. Andre currently is a partner at Arnold & Porter. Adam is a partner at Wild Gotchel & Manges and represented Bridgestone in criminal and civil cases connected to the auto parts conspiracy. To get started, what are some of the worst consequences that could happen if a company is involved in an antitrust cartel? Uh, thanks, Christina. First, let me thank you for this important and interesting program by the New York uh, Bar Association. Um, and I should also state at the outset that uh, any views or opinions I express are mine and are not necessarily those of the antitrust division or Department of Justice. But turning to your question, uh, if we look at the most significant penalties and punishments associated with a criminal antitrust violation for a company, I mean, typically what we're talking about is a conviction, whether that be following an indictment in a trial or through a plea agreement. Of course, the company itself won't be incarcerated, but it will face significant fines and it could also be debarred or excluded from participating in government contracts programs or other government payer programs, which could potentially um, affect or even threaten the financial stability of a company. And while the company can't be incarcerated, it's culpable executives from the company who were involved in the conduct, they could be, which would necessarily result in uncertainty among corporate leadership potentially. So I think when you're talking about the most significant consequences, you're talking about a conviction. Right, and what policy concerns are behind these consequences? Well, I think the penalties for corporations involved in criminal antitrust violations are intended to protect competition, which in turn benefits consumers and the free marketplace. And of course, criminal penalties are intended to defer future crimes, both by the involved companies or individuals, as well as others that may be considering antitrust violations. Thank you. Let's talk about recidivism now. Sure. And why don't I jump in and, and just at least define what I'm talking about and what I think the perspective of the Department of Justice is and the antitrust division is talking about when we talk about corporate recidivism. Um, 
And I think there are really are a couple different types of recidivism we could be talking about. One is a corporation that has engaged in violations of the same criminal conduct on one on more than one occasion. So in the antitrust context, we'd be talking about a company that was um, prosecuted for price fixing or bid rigging or market allocation, and then subsequently commits that same violation. Perhaps it is in the very same product market, or it could be in a different product market. But corporate recidivism could also consider a corporation's broader history of compliance beyond the current conduct being investigated. And uh, the Department of Justice will consider criminal violations of other types, including other criminal conduct or other civil violations and perhaps even regulatory non-compliance. That sounds a lot like what U.S. Deputy Attorney General Monaco announced when she announced changes to the DOJ's corporate criminal enforcement policies back in 2021. And she noted that 10 to 20 percent of all corporate resolutions involve repeat offenders. And based on your experience, has the rate of corporate recidivism increased or decreased over the past decade? And how has the leniency program impacted the rate of recidivism? Yeah, well, throughout my career with the division, uh, which at this point does now span a couple of decades, I have certainly encountered repeat offenders, both in the sense of repeat offenders of antitrust crimes, as well as corporations having been involved involved in non-antitrust violations. I can't quantify or say that I have seen an increase in recidivism, But I think it is fair to say that the DOJ is more focused on the problem of recidivism and is addressing it head on. In terms of the impact of the leniency program, the hope is that educating corporations on the consequences of antitrust violations and the benefits of self-reporting has increased compliance efforts, which in turn should reduce recidivism. But it's hard to, to quantify, as I said, the specific impact. But I have also observed that certain industries have been surprisingly, uh, what I guess I would describe, inattentive to compliance in the antitrust sphere, even if there is sufficient compliance in other uh, regulated aspects of the the business or the industry. What industries were you talking about there? Well, uh, I mean, not to be too specific, but, but one that springs to mind as an example is um, for example, in the healthcare industry, we have had in the Department of Justice, the Antitrust Division has had uh, ongoing investigations in, in a variety of healthcare sectors in recent years. And it's been a little bit surprising to me to see that there is kind of robust compliance among certain aspects of their um, healthcare regulations and guidelines. Yet at the same time, there seem to be, at least among some of these companies, very little. Um, antitrust training or compliance prior to the antitrust division's investigations. What has led to the DOJ's heightened interest in corporate recidivism? Well, earlier you noted um, the comments by the uh, Lisa Monaco in uh, 2021, and in, in her comments, she noted that there the changes that were being put in place to the guidelines re- relating to corporate recidivism found that 10 to 20% of significant corporate criminal resolutions involved repeat offenders. I think this realization was a significant signal that the deterrent effect of penalties on corporate wrongdoers, while while was having some impact, could be improved. So one tool to address that is aggressively pursuing prosecution of recidivist companies, as well as seeking appropriate deterrent penalties for those recidivist corporations. 
Um, and in the case of a recidivist corporation, there is a concern that those in decision-making authority may be choosing to risk violating the law in order to increase revenue and profits. Well, so just to add to Mark's note, um, I just wanted to echo that a lot of the interests in corporate recidivism seem to be driven by um, this belief that there may be kind of siloing of compliance functions in the sense that some areas may be stronger, whereas some areas may be weaker, um, you know, both within companies, but also um, I think within DOJ's approach, there there is a movement towards making sure there aren't silos in different practice areas. So for example, um, you know, if a company has committed an antitrust violation, but later uh, engages in an FCPA violation or some other regulatory violation. So I, I think the current policy is to make sure that's all taken into account so that, um, you know, if you're doing the FCPA investigation, you can consider the fact that there was a prior antitrust violation or other kind of violation, really kind of approaching the question of kind of compliance and recidivism more holistically rather than just focusing narrow, narrowly in the, kind of the specific area in which you practice. What are some of the goals of the DOJ's guidelines for dealing with recidivism, and how do you think the DOJ's guidelines advance these goals? Yeah, I think the key goal, of course, is to deter and to detect corporate wrongdoing. And then associated with that is to appropriately punish corporations that are repeat offenders. Um, the increased focus uh, and the guidelines accounting for prior corporate wrongdoing enable the department to, in essence, account for a corporations' criminal history, as, as has been the case for individuals in the criminal uh, sentencing regime for, for quite some time. And this should also advance the goal of encouraging more responsible corporate citizens and compliance by, I think, by both heightening the awareness of, of the risk for corporations that repeatedly fall short in compliance efforts, and, and also to recognize that if a corporation is engaged in, in multiple violations, it's, it's going to be treated differently than a first-time offender. Yeah, I think from a company standpoint, uh, you know, what DOJ is trying to incentivize is really to have kind of what I would call a broad and deep compliance program where it's not just focused on specific violations, but you really take into account kind of all of the potential legal risks uh, that might apply to your business and making sure you have adequate measures uh, in terms of compliance to, to address those risks uh, and having these guidelines from DOJ is really, I think, a helpful um, emphasis of, of that approach uh, that can help companies and their outside counsel think through these types of compliance questions. How often do companies disclose additional criminal activity during an ongoing investigation? As I was thinking about this, I think the best way to describe it is that it's, it's not uncommon. Um, I worked on multiple both leniency investigations and, uh, and others over my career, and it's, I would say it's not out of the ordinary for a second or third in company, meaning a second or third in to cooperate. It's not uncommon for one of those companies to disclose additional criminal activity. It certainly doesn't happen in every, every investigation, but I think corporations should be aware that um, once they're under investigation and others are cooperating, there's a if there's other conduct or activity that they're involved in that is not the specific 
focus of that investigation, there's, I think, a heightened increase in, in likelihood that that will be discovered. And without naming specific investigations, um, you know, I think it's fairly well known that some of the division's larger investigations kind of were begat by previous investigations, which were begat by investigations before that. So um, a lot of these matters really involve starting in one place, uh, perhaps with a leniency applicant, or perhaps with just a, um, you know, an, a division investigation, and then in the course of that investigation, um, companies coming in to disclose new conduct. So that rolls into new investigations, sometimes multiple new investigations, and, and that's fairly common uh, practice at the division. One thing I would, I would just throw in, I agree with all of that. It, in addition, I think it's important to um, recognize and appreciate the significance of having any scrutiny on a corporation um, from either the government and then, of course, as outside counsel is engaged and, and comes in. Um, obviously, the likelihood that a corporation has any problem to begin with is going to be somewhat a function of the compliance culture and the extent to which it has a strong legal department and so on. Um, if something does uh, spark an investigation, either an internal investigation or an investigation by the DOJ, um, it's going to shake up a bit the company, right? Outside counsel will come in, they'll be asking a lot of questions, reviewing documents. And so all of that scrutiny is, of course, going to substantially increase the likelihood that other adjacent violations or other legal problems are going to um, kind of float to the surface. And if they do, um, very often defense counsel is going to think it's, it's prudent and appropriate to disclose those to the government. Um, for no other reason than if you're already in the midst of an investigation, the documentary evidence of those other violations is <laughs> likely or very well going to be um, brought to the attention of the government. So better to do that in affirmative posture rather than just um, waiting to see what the government does when it receives that discovery. Why might a company fail to disclose an ongoing antitrust violation? There are a variety of reasons why a company may make a, a thoughtful, informed judgment. I think an ongoing antitrust violation, um, perhaps the likelihood that that not disclosing is um, a good idea is probably lower. Um, but you could see a situation where a corporation, you know, the legal department of the board discovers that there has been an antitrust violation that's taken place, even a recent one. But perhaps it's small. Perhaps there are arguments that um, it's not clear whether it affects U.S. commerce and thus whether the U.S. antitrust law should apply. Um, you know, I think lawyer outside lawyers, defense counsel are obviously going to be cautious. The benefits of seeking leniency of cooperating with the government can be quite substantial. Um, also, you may have a client that for just kind of corporate integrity from that standpoint, um, may feel it's the appropriate and right thing to do to disclose. Um, but that's not always going to be the case. And I think companies that do have integrity, that do want to do the right thing, nevertheless may look carefully at certain facts and think hard about whether affirmatively disclosing, um, especially if they're not already um, part of some investigation, um, whether affirmatively disclosing is, is the appropriate and best thing to do. What I would add to Adam's comments is that kind of before you can disclose another violation, you first have to discover it. 
Um, so one potential reason a company may not disclose additional violations is they don't know about it. Um, you, you might anticipate that you know, folks engaged in the conduct might not want to get in trouble. Um, so they may not be out there kind of, you know, raising their hands to, to highlight conduct that they've engaged in, you know, whether they're afraid of losing their job or, or some kind, kind of uh, uh, other employment penalty. Uh, so in terms of having that ability to disclose, first, I think companies need to have procedures where they can discover the conduct uh, and where comp uh, where the company's employees are comfortable reporting the conduct internally because you can't disclose something that you don't know about. Yeah, if I could just jump in, Andre, that's a, a great point. And just something that it sparks in my mind is just being mindful of the difference between the likelihood of disclosure before an investigation has commenced and then the likelihood after. And so the former, you're really you're really thinking about whether there's a culture of corporate compliance, whether the, the compliance program at the company has developed an environment where employees feel comfortable to come forward and say, hey, I was in a meeting and I heard about so-and-so and that sounded inappropriate, or I saw an email that makes me think perhaps someone is having you know, improper communications with competitors. That's that's the former, and, and there's obviously, you know, a lot that a company can do to encourage someone to come forward to the, a compliance officer, to the legal department, and disclose that. Um, but I think, Andre, your point is really important for what happens after the investigation has started. So to the extent that outside counsel is investigating employees and going through documents, at that point, the calculus for whether an employee is going to come forward and, and disclose um, what they believe might be a violation or sensitive behavior is probably quite different. And there are different factors at play about um, whether they think it's in their best interest to do that, the incentives and so on. And there, um, you know, a lot of that has to do with the skill and capability of outside counsel, how they conduct the internal investigation, how they advise the client to communicate with employees in order to maximize the likelihood that they will disclose um, their any knowledge they have of sensitive behavior. Um, so two two separate issues, but both obviously important. Do companies sometimes fail to disclose an ongoing antitrust violation because they're unaware that its actions violate antitrust laws? I think the um, the short answer is yes. Um, that can happen. I've I've had at least one case where um, it was clear that the employees who were involved in the sensitive behavior and and no doubt that behavior constituted a a uh, violation of the Sherman Act. Um, but there was no awareness that their behavior was unlawful. I think the more common situation is where um, employees are aware that certain behavior or communication with competitors about competitively sensitive information is improper, but they may not realize that it's a, a felony, that it's a federal violation and that people can um, go to jail for it. And um, that's not surprising. Frankly, um, I'm a bit sympathetic for some executives who um, get in the soup, so to speak, on cartel violations and, and had not fully appreciated what they were doing, especially if they're less sophisticated, if they're at smaller companies that may not have, um, you know, compliance officers or meaningful legal departments and have not been through training and so on. 
it's not always um, an employee's fault that they have been that they haven't been sensitized um, to the importance of antitrust compliance and so on. And by none of that is meant to say you know to kind of excuse that behavior. But I think there are gradations that are that are important to um, that are important to at least uh, see and understand. Kind of what's DOJ's reaction to that type of argument of well you know this person didn't really know. Um, that what they were doing was unlawful. Yeah, and I think we might be um, potentially talking about a couple of different categories here. I mean, one category might be where there's a, a legitimate question by either the employee or in-house counsel or outside counsel as to whether the conduct crossed the threshold of something that the antitrust division would pursue and want to pros prosecute. And in that situation, uh, I think the division, well, my perspective um, would be it, it's probably safest course to to bring that to to the attention of the division, allow um, the company or uh, to to get the credit for coming in and, 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 and cooperating. If leniency is available, then get leniency. If not, they can get cooperation credit. And, and maybe ultimately the answer that the division has is, yeah, this this is ultimately not conduct that we're going to prosecute, but that'll still inure to the benefit of the, the company and there will, um, you know, maybe some expense in, in bringing that to the attention of the division, but at least it won't, it'll provide some certainty. Um, then there may be this situation that perhaps Andre was referring to where um, the conduct, at least in the division's eyes, is a more clear violation, but the, the the person or the employees involved in it just didn't appreciate at the time that they were engaged in that conduct that it crossed the line of, of being a violation of the law. And under the uh, Sherman Act, under the antitrust violations, it's not a specific in intent crime. So uh, they certainly had to intend to reach an agreement that is a per se violation, but they didn't have to know that doing so was a violation of the law. And so, um, the division is not going to be terribly sympathetic to an employee that acted with an understanding that he was reaching an agreement, even if that employee, that corporation didn't know at the time that it was a violation of the law. Yeah. I'll just jump in for a second. I, I, I don't disagree with all of that. I guess, um, I guess my question mark to you and you may, maybe tough for you to answer is if you, if you had a situation where there were an executive who was clearly aware that their conduct was unlawful, right? They, they, you have an email that says, oh, I went to the compliance program. They said price fixing is legal. So let's do it, but let's really make sure that the legal department doesn't find out. Um, you know, I would, ex I would think that that fact, while it may not have, it may not be meaningful for legal purposes, but just for you all and, and your views on prosecution and your choice about whether to charge and, and what penalty to seek and so on. I mean, something brazen like that would probably impact in some way your thinking. Whereas if you had a junior executive who, you know, had never had training, never been to law school, never been to business school and kind of engaged in some sensitive behavior, you know, violative behavior, but, but really didn't know that they, what they were doing was a crime. I think I'm sure that wouldn't change whether you would prosecute. Yeah, for sure. The division will uh, assess all of those factors that and, and part of that assessment will be determining whether we believe we have a prosecutable case. And while um, I think the assumption is that juries will follow the letter of the law and will apply the law appropriately, um, we're certainly also not 
going to ignore the appealability appealability uh, of the case to jurors that may be listening to to the evidence and certainly executives or employees that demonstrate that through their conduct that they were aware that what they were doing is wrong and we're trying to hide that is going to um, appeal to presenting that case to a jury. Um, having said that, the division has certainly brought cases against individuals that uh, asserted that they did not appreciate or, or understand that what they were doing was a violation of the law. And there it really turns on the facts of you know, how, how stark is the conduct and what is the impact of, of that violation. Okay, let's talk about penalty plus. So the antitrust division has come among its suite of policies within the leniency program uh, penalty plus policy, uh, which essentially states that, you know, if you're resolving one case with a division and don't self-report a different violation that the division later discovers, um, when you're prosecuted for that second violation, the division will seek a more severe penalty for that second violation because you had an opportunity to disclose it earlier and did not do so. Um, so that's one uh, factor that was considered in the Bridgestone case, for example, and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, let me pause here to give a disclaimer that you know, when it comes to the Bridgestone case, um, and I think this applies probably to all of us, that we're only talking about um, information in the public record um, and, and no confidential information. And I also want to echo Mark's disclaimer earlier that um, I am speaking on behalf of myself, not on behalf of the firm or its clients. And I'm sure this is true of, of Adam as well. Um, so um, circling back to Penalty Plus, so this is one way that the division um, essentially incentivizes companies to conduct broad internal investigations when they are involved in antitrust uh, antitrust investigations. So you, know, you might have an ongoing investigation for one product. What the division wants you to do is look at all your other product lines to see if there might be potential violations there because if there are and you don't discover them, and the division investigates it down the road, you will face more uh, severe punishment for that conduct. The severity of a penalty plus enhancement depends on the reason why the applicant failed to report the second conspiracy. What are reasons for failing to self-report? And are certain reasons more justifiable than others? Yes, I think there's certainly a variety of reasons why a company may not self-report um, and it's a range, for example, a company may not conduct a full internal investigation, so therefore isn't taking any efforts to, to discover other conduct. Um, on the other hand, a company could be engaged in really significant efforts to uncover other conduct, but just isn't able to do so. Uh, for example, if companies aren't, or I'm sorry, if employees are not cooperating or not uh, self-reporting their own conduct, um, and a third reason might be that a company discovers the conduct, but for its own reasons, decides that um, it, it's better off not self-reporting that conduct, you know, whether it's old stale conduct outside of the statute of limitations or outside of the United States, 
Um, there's a whole host of reasons why a company may decide not to self-report. Um, and I think the division's reaction to that is when they're making their sentencing determination in terms of how severe should this additional punishment be, the reasons matter. So if you engage in a full internal investigation but didn't discover the conduct, you'll be treated differently from a company that took no steps to discover conduct. And you'll be treated differently from a company that discovered the conduct but decided not to self-report it. And those two latter examples would be treated more harshly, I think. What arguments can a corporation make in favor of a less severe enhancement? Um, I think the perhaps the most critical question is what did the company do at the time of the first violation to, you know, what I think has been referred to often as kind of clean house? Um, how vigorous and meaningful were the efforts by the legal team inside the company as well as outside counsel to survey and detect potential violations other than what, what was being put on? Um, and, um, and obviously, to the extent that you can put specific numbers on that, it's going to be important, like how many hours were spent on it or how many interviews were conducted, how many emails were reviewed, and so on and so forth. I mean, one challenge may be that, that that internal investigation may have been conducted by a different law firm. It may have been conducted years before where the records are not as clear. But anything that can be done to demonstrate a, a clear, clearly vigorous and, um, and uh, energetic effort to identify the additional sensitive behavior is important. Um, I think not that, you know, we're always looking for a scapegoat in these cases, but certainly to the extent that um, the inability to have identified sensitive behavior in the first case fell upon one or maybe several executives. Obviously, someone had to have known something and, and perhaps didn't step forward um, to show what efforts were made to you know, speak to that person, encourage them to be forthcoming and so on. Um, that's obviously going to be very important as well. Um, I think to the extent that it turns out certain executives at the company had not been cooperative in trying to uncover that additional sensitive behavior, the DOJ is going to probably ask why and what is it they did. Um, so, you know, for example, did they were they asked, have you done anything else bad? And they just said no. Or did they go and shred documents? Did they, did they delete emails, um, do anything else that kind of more affirmative efforts or, or that, you know, becomes potentially obstruction of justice type issues, I'm sure I would think the DOJ was going to be sensitive to that. So those are important questions to ask her. And then finally, um, and this gets a little bit to Andre's point about, you know, the conduct, is it stale? Is it outside the United States? Um, is it not clear that it constituted a violation of the Sherman Act? Some of those factors are going to be uh, there as well. What factors may have been influential in determining the severity of Bridgestone's penalty? Again, limiting my uh, response to the public record, um, you know, penalty plus did play a significant role uh, in Bridgestone's penalty. I, I think the division announced that, just so we can put some numbers on it, um, the penalty increased by over $100 million just because of the penalty plus reason. Um, and, you know, Council certainly did a, a, a good job kind of explaining the history of the marine hose investigation and how it led to um, the auto parts uh, matter with Bridgestone. Um, but at the end of the day, 
there there will be a penalty applied, you know, just by virtue of the lack of self-reporting. Um, so th that's the greatest factor. And then, you know, there's a sliding scale, as I mentioned earlier, but I think companies can expect that that sliding scale is not going to be that generous. Uh, you, you will get tagged if, uh, if you're in a penalty plus situation. Yeah, Christina, I'll just add to that again, you know, um, starting by saying that we're, we can't share anything confidential. Um, unsurprisingly, there was a, you know, a good amount of conversation between the DOJ and, uh, and counsel regarding um, the, the penalty and the amount attributable to the penalty plus. Um, but I think important for the listeners is it was a conversation. Um, and in my experience, typically, the DOJ has been quite good about listening carefully to arguments from defense counsel about um, about sentencing decisions and, and plea negotiations, thinking about various factors and how they should impact um, an applicable fine. And I think um, that experience that I've had over the years in that context was certainly the case in the context of engaging with DOJ on the penalty plus. It, it could have been worse, that's for sure. <laughs> always, always. How do you think the DOJ's updated guidance on corporate recidivism may impact penalty plus fine enhancements? Yeah, it's an interesting question because the antitrust division's penalty plus program or uh, policies predated the department's updated guidance on corporate recidivism. And so the penalty plus really was focused on uh, a corporation involved in either concurrent or overlapping antitrust conduct and in accounting for um, a second offense in, in an antitrust violation. Um, and so that will certainly continue to be the case and that will lead to enhanced penalties for companies that find themselves in that situation. Obviously, it'll be a very fact-specific analysis as to, to determine you know, how significant that penalty plus uh, portion of the fine should be. But I think now layered into the um, analysis will be what other violations has the company been involved in or what other um, problems has the company had. And so that may lead to even uh, more significant uh, fine enhancements for a company that's pleading guilty or has been um, prosecuted. What lessons can be learned from Bridgestone's failure to self-report its involvement in the auto parts conspiracy? I mean, I think as the plea agreement makes clear in the marine hose conspiracy for Bridgestone, um, Bridgestone pled to both an antitrust count as well as an FCPA violation, if you look back at that, that plea agreement. Um, and so as part of, of resolving those investigations by both the antitrust division and the criminal division, Bridgestone was, uh, was conducting internal investigations, particularly well, I won't say particularly, but including to, to focus on FCPA issues throughout the world. Um, and I think that's that's clear from the, the plea agreement and the factual um, uh, admissions. And so there was certainly an opportunity, and, and I think this is a lesson for, for any corporation that finds itself in this, in this position. There was an opportunity to be conducting a, an extensive um, internal investigation to identify wrongdoing and um, and while you know, I, I certainly wasn't behind the scenes, I don't know what steps were taken, but um, when you're out conducting an internal investigation, it's, it's important to not 
be so laser focused on just one potential problem that you, that you might overlook and miss other problems that you could then get the benefit of, of bringing that to the attention of authorities. Yeah, Mark, it's Adam. I, I agree completely. It's a great point. And what I would add to it is, um, as is often the case in in legal proceedings, you have to do the right thing, but there sometimes can be a, a separate and distinct question of doing things to show that you've done the right thing. And what I mean by that is structuring that um, peripheral vision and that effort to um, look at, look and uncover stones besides what's immediately in front of you. First, you know, thinking realistically where are they most likely to be, but B, developing a record that you conducted that internal investigation so that that it would appear later and and would you could credibly argue and demonstrate that it had been a reasonable effort, that it had been done properly. So thinking, who are you going to interview? What documents are you going to look at? What keywords are you going to search? And, and kind of doing that in a way so that at the end, if the DOJ or a board member says, well, what did you do to find the problem? Um, then you have a story to respond to there and, and in bullets and in clear, simple, straightforward fashion, a compelling narrative where at the, at the end of which the DOJ or a board member or a shareholder would say, wow, you guys made a good effort. And if it turns out that you didn't catch something down the road, um, people will not think that you did a bad job. Yeah, I completely agree with that. You, when you're doing the work, you always need to focus on how can we show this work to external audiences such as the DOJ. Um, that's a really important part of the process. For the listeners who are not familiar with with the auto parts case and what happened with Bridgestone's fine, um, I wondered if you could just maybe throw those numbers out there and, and talk about that. Sure. So the total fine for Bridgestone and the auto parts matter was $425 million. Um, and just by way of comparison, um, it's fine. Um, in the Marine hose matter, um, and Mark can jump in if I get this wrong, but I, I believe was in the high twenties, um, million dollars um so we're talking about you know almost 20 times by order of magnitude uh now that's driven by multiple factors but as i said earlier um in terms of penalty plus it, the division publicly disclosed that penalty plus played a more than 100 million dollar role in reaching that 425 million number so you know, a, a really significant increase in the fine. And at the time, Bridgestone was um, one of the largest antitrust fines in history uh, for the antitrust division. Let's talk about corporate compliance programs. Yeah, Christina, it's a great it's a great way to wrap up the session because I think everything we've talked about today, underlying it um, in some way, shape or form is the question of, of corporate compliance. And at the simplest level, if a company is compliant, then <clears throat> they're not going to have any of these problems to begin with. But with large multinational corporations with tens of thousands of employees, um, I think maybe the best way to say it is it's all a game of likelihoods, right? There's going to be efforts placed in corporate compliance. Um, and the role of that is not to seek to guarantee that the company will never get in trouble, because I just think realistically, huge companies are always going to have some type of legal problem, despite 
you know, reasonably best efforts um, at corporate compliance. And the question is how you allocate those resources and what you do to minimize the likelihood. Um, and corporate compliance is also obviously going to play a big role. For example, we talked about penalty plus, um, you know, to the extent to which if there's wrongdoing discovered in one part of the company, how likely is it that there's wrongdoing elsewhere? Or how likely is it that um, in the context of an internal investigation, executives and employees will feel comfortable to come forward and, and report what they know, um, the extent to which they might have come forward even before the internal investigation started. Um, we talk a lot, and it's a big thing these days in the white-collar space, about, um, about a culture of compliance. And um, it's um, a little pithy, and kind of people throw that phrase around, and, and it's um, sometimes perhaps uh, tempting to roll your eyes a little bit when, when you hear that expression. Um, but I have seen in my experience with lots of different companies quite a spectrum. And there are companies that truly have a compliance culture where you talk to executives and business people who are, are just very sensitive and very thoughtful about how their communication and their conduct implicates the antitrust and other laws and what legal risk it could create for the corporation and for themselves. And at other companies that just may not exist at all. Um, it has to do with how much effort and energy is placed into compliance training, um, the strength and um, influence of the legal department at the corporation, the extent to which the company has been scared straight, so to speak. Um, so at companies that, you know, unsurprisingly, if a company is hit with a big fine, it kind of teaches a bit of a lesson and it does um, more often than not encourage them to invest more time and resources in compliance. And so I just start from that very holistic standpoint. All of this is really tied back to compliance. What changes did Bridgestone make to its internal compliance program following the IOPARTS conspiracy? Well, um, without getting into any um, confidential information, I can say that certainly there was a renewed focus and interest in compliance at the company. Um, what I would say more generally, I've seen with cases where um, we have a client that has to pay a substantial legal fine, uh, a substantial fine attributable to cartel behavior is that I think the the companies that do the best are the ones who take a crisis like a cartel violation and prosecution by the DOJ and turn it into a positive, right? They take advantage of that milestone and that opportunity to um, increase resources in the legal department and the compliance function. Um, you almost want employees to be aware and kind of highlight what has happened to the company, but use that as a way to get employees focused and attuned to the risks attributable to anti-competitive behavior so that um, they're more thoughtful in their behavior and, and the conduct of their business going forward. Andre, can you tell us what the DOJ did to monitor Bridgestone's compliance efforts? What was the DOJ looking for as proof of compliance? Sure. So as part of the plea agreement with uh, Bridgestone and as part of its sentence uh, in the case, uh, Bridgestone was subject to three years of probation. Uh, and what came with that was um, an annual compliance report uh, to the division and to the court um, in terms of how it was doing uh, on the antitrust compliance front. Um, so each year during those three years, we would receive a, a report from the company um, on 
whatever I was doing on um, these issues, including, you know, training and education. Um, there was also interest in um, the employment status of culpable employees, um, you know, whether there's been repercussions uh, for culpable individuals, uh, so things of that nature. So in terms of what the DOJ is looking for, it really is kind of a holistic approach um, in terms of how the company is trying to prevent recidivism. So that means educating your employees. It might also mean getting rid of any bad actors. So the DOJ looks at all of that. What factors does the DOJ find important in determining whether a compliance program is effective? What factors come up most in the analysis? Yeah, and maybe I'll start by just directing any of your listeners who are interested to um, guidance that was set out by the Antitrust Division in July of 2019 through a document called um, The Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs in Criminal Antitrust Investigations. That's a 17-page document that really, in, in fairly detailed manner, goes through what at least potentially makes an effective compliance program. It's not a checklist. Obviously, each company needs to individualize its compliance program to its lines of business and its its structure. Um, but I, I think some takeaways that are important for any company trying to um, impose and set up a, a truly effective compliance program are, include that it's got to come from the highest levels of the company. Um, the rank and file employees have to understand and, and know that that ethical and compliant uh, culture is of the highest importance to the, the leadership of the company. There has to be some uh, mechanism for promoting um, reporting of violations and, in fact, even encouraging those. There's, there's multiple ways that I think companies can do that by uh, tying compliant culture to to you know, pay and, and, and progress or, or progression at the company. Um, and and then, of course, the training has to be regular and it has to be effective um, rather than kind of a sign a form, check a box type of type of thing. But, you know, I've encouraged people to take a look at that document. Obviously, we don't have time to really dig into the weeds here, but that, that provides some good guidance and instruction for what type of things the Department of Justice will be looking at as as we evaluate whether we think a program has been uh, effective and, and, and useful. In conclusion, I'd like to ask each of you why you think the Marine Hose cartel cases are significant, and why do you think we're still talking about them over a decade later? I think the Marine Hose case and then the, the its its uh, basis for the penalty plus is significant because it has been um, the most substantial penalty plus case. Um, I think to some extent when that plea agreement in um, anti-vibration rubber parts was announced, the DOJ, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but the DOJ you know, took a bit of advantage of it to demonstrate that penalty plus was, you know, for lack of a better term, a real thing, um, and used it as a basis to encourage the, the antitrust community and corporations operating in the United States to be aware um, that if they plead on product A, they really should look carefully and make sure that they don't have a problem on product B. Um, and my guess is that that was pretty effective, right? When people saw um, a $425 million fine and saw that over 100 million 
that was attributable to the penalty plus element. Um, I'm sure a lot of cartel lawyers, you know, in their next conversation with clients or when they were conducting compliance programs or talking to GCs, um, were quick to highlight that fact and make sure that that clients and other members of the business community, legal community as well, were aware of it. I think these sets of cases from Marine Hose to the auto parts uh, case really shows kind of what a long tail antitrust violations can have. So you know, if you're engaged in, in an antitrust violation, you know, it, it's not just a matter of, you know, perhaps you might get in trouble for that one, but there might be future ramifications down the road if there's other conduct. And the Bridgestone example shows that sometimes the tail can be much bigger than the original issue. Um, so I think it really emphasizes the fact that companies should do everything they can in, in terms of compliance to try to avoid that situation altogether. And I'll just add a little bit, you know, I had the opportunity to listen to some of the earlier uh, podcasts in the series on the Marine Hose cartel. And I was, was reminded that I think part of the reason that this investigation, these prosecutions still garner attention is is because it really I, I think to some extent shows the full scope of tools and also possible outcomes for uh, individuals and entities engaged in, in antitrust violations uh it was the first case that that i think the division used title three um, wiretap on it involved cooperators taking advantage of the leniency program it involved people cooperating in second and third end it involved people that that, that it held out and were uh, were tried and, and then it also brings into play some of the other policies that we talked about here today, such as um, leniency, or, or, and we didn't get to it in this discussion, but leniency plus and penalty plus and, and all of the different, I think, things that um, counsel representing these companies need to be thinking about as they uh, find themselves caught up in an antitrust investigation. Mark, Adam, and Andre, thank you so much for your time and thank you for participating in this podcast. And thank you listeners for tuning into this four-part series. This concludes Undercurrents Unveiled. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents Unveiled, the Marine Hose Cartel Antitrust Odyssey. It is produced and shared by the NYSBA's Antitrust Law Section. The opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent their employer or other organizations. If you liked what you heard or would like to become a member of the NYSBA, please check out what the antitrust section has to offer at nysba.org slash committees slash antitrust dash law dash section.